Open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 7. And today we're starting our study in the, uh, the Ten Plagues. Uh, we've been going verse by verse through Exodus, and we're continuing to go verse by verse through Exodus. We've gotten to the middle of chapter 7, and this now begins the Ten Plagues. So we're going to kind of intro that a little bit today, and we're going to get through the first plague and see what God wants to show us and teach us. How many of you have heard the Ten Plagues of Egypt before? Yep, seen Moses when you were growing up, the Ten Commandments, or, or uh, what was the cartoon? Prince of Egypt, or the Hanna-Barbera version, if you were super homeschooled. No, just kidding. Just kidding. That was on Saturday morning, actually. ABC had those. I remember that. Okay. Well, um, we, uh, let's, let's pray. So we can't understand anything in the Word of God unless the Holy Spirit reveals us, and we must ask Him. So, Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit to reveal to us, Lord, what this means in our hearts. Lord, we, we don't want to have hard, cold, and rebellious hearts like Pharaoh, uh, but Lord, we want to have soft hearts, and that is a gift from you. So we pray and we ask to just simply, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that we would hear your word, and Lord, that, that we would um, hear your spirit and what it is saying to us and how, um, Father, uh, you are calling out for those who would turn to you and, and receive your love and gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. This is called Plagues 101, Water Turned to Blood is our study today. Next week will be Plagues 102 and so forth. And it'll be awesome. Yes, it's like a college course. Okay. When we, when we think about the number 10, there's 10 plagues that we're going to see. Well, 10 in the Bible is actually very um, important. And, and 10, a lot of numbers represent things in the Bible. You guys know the number 7 is really a, a big one. And it represents completion or God's uh, totality. And, uh, and 10 also is a very significant number. So you know you have the, um, the Ten Commandments. You got the Ten Plagues, which we're studying. You got um, the Ten Horns and, and Ten Heads of the Beast in Revelation. You have Noah was the tenth from Adam. Noah, remember Noah and his ark? He was the tenth generation from Adam. You have a whole bunch of tens. So what does ten speak of in the Bible? It speaks of law or rules, or measuring up, plus judgment. So it kind of has this idea of 10 is what we're measured by. So it's kind of like a yardstick. God's yardstick is the number 10, okay? And that's how we're going to think about this. So in those 10 commandments, so that's easy to see how those correlate with the idea of measuring up. You're going to be judged by the 10 commandments when you die. Maybe. <laughs> if, you're, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't accepted his grace, God is going to measure your life by the Ten Commandments. And if you have ever failed, even when you were a kid or in, even in your heart, at one of those commandments means if you've ever told a lie, if you've ever stolen, if you've ever lusted in your heart, you will go to hell. Period. That is God's judgment. That's what the Ten Commandments are for. They send people to hell. You're like, well, why did God bring me the Ten Commandments then? Why does God... Judge us by that if that just sends us to hell. Well, because God is, God is perfect. And his standard, his Ten Commandments are perfect. They're not, nothing's wrong with them. What's the problem here? The problem is us. We fail. And so all of us, if we're judged by those Ten Commandments, we fail. We have to go 
outside of God's presence, and the only place prepared in that way is hell. So, oh, this is a great sermon. We're just starting off talking about going to hell. Well, there's great, wonderful, good news that if you realize during your life that you don't measure up to the Ten Commandments, that you are guilty of sin, God has provided a way for all of your sin to be done away with. He removes the law that is by the death of Jesus Christ. He is our substitute. He is judged according to the law for us. So all the mistakes you made are put on him. And on the cross, he takes those. He's punished by God for our sin. And we get to walk away free and innocent. And how do I get that for me? You simply ask to the Lord. In humility and faith, you say, Lord, I am guilty. Jesus, I do believe in what you did. Boom, born again. God puts a new heart in you. And now we live a different life. Well, how does that happen? You come to the Lord. He fills you with his Holy Spirit. And now you love to do the Ten Commandments that you tried to do before. Now you love to do them. Even though you're not judged by them anymore, you love to do them. That's just the new heart that we have when we're born again. And it's awesome. So those Ten Commandments speak of judgment. The Ten Plagues, we're going to see speak of the judgment on Egypt. And what does Egypt picture as we've been studying the book of Exodus? The world. So God not only judges people, all people, he judges them for their sin, but he judges the world. And we're going to see that. Uh, We're going to see the Passover is killed on the 10th day of the month of the 10th month. That is very significant as well. Okay? Because the Passover is going to speak of judgment on sin as well. And that's the 10th plague. Okay? So the 10th plague on the 10th day, on the 10th month, is the Passover lamb. Who does the Passover lamb represent? Oh, you guys are so well taught in the Bible. Then you have the 10 toes and the 10 horns of the beast in Revelation and in Daniel. And that speaks of the judgment of the world. And then Noah, the 10th generation, that speaks of the judgment of the ancient world, that God judges sin even back then. So what do we learn from these 10 plagues, okay? Well, we're going to see several, six different things that we're going to see each week that we're going we're gonna to learn. Number one is they show the mighty power of God, as we've been studying, the power of the Redeemer. So if you remember that outline that we, do you have that slide of the outline? We've been doing an outline each week of the whole book of Exodus. And chapters 1 through 6 we saw was the need for redemption. And chapters 7 through 11, which we're in right now, is the power of the Redeemer. So these plagues are going to show the power of the Redeemer. Number two, they're going to show God's anger at Pharaoh's sin and his treatment of the Hebrew people. God does not look kindly on wrong behavior, and he's angry about it. Number three, there's a judgment on the gods of Egypt. These are the demons and false gods who were influencing the people and leading the people into more rebellion. Okay? Number four, we're going to, it proves that Yahweh, our God, is the most high God and he's above all other spiritual beings. He is the one true God. We're going to study that more. There's actually a lot of crazy spiritual uh, warfare happening during this that we're going to look at. And number five, There's a warning to other nations that God will curse those who curse the Israelites, curse the Jews, okay? Number six, there are some testings of Israel throughout these 10 plagues. We're going to see that God is working in their hearts as well, okay? So how do we look at these 10 plagues? How do you view them? Well, the 10th one 
Just imagine a group of ten. The tenth one we separate out, and it's very special. And it, because it talks about uh, redemption, it, it's completing and, and finishing the ten plagues. And so we separate that one out. And then you have the other nine plagues, and those are grouped in three groups of three. It's pretty amazing. As, you, as we go through them, we're going to see three groups of three. The first two of each group have warnings, and the third doesn't. So it repeats that pattern three times. These things just blow me away, how God designs the word and, and how he sets it up for us. It's just you can study it for years and years and continually find more things that blow your mind about how perfect he does this. So we're going to see, we're going to study those in that way. Last thing we'll say just for our introduction is that there's a progression of severity with the ten plagues. The first three plagues, that first group, they attack the comforts of, of Egypt and the people of Egypt. So you have water being turned into blood, you have frogs, and you have lice. And these three just attack the, the way that they lived in comfortable rebellion against God. Four through six attack the possessions of the Egyptian people. The flies on the land, the cattle die, and the boils on, on their skin, their body. This is their possessions, things that they claim as they own. God is saying, you don't really own these things. And then the 7th through ninth, uh, there's a, a, it's uh, plagues about desolation and death. Just, it gets worse and worse and worse as we progress through. And then we have a moral application of the plagues. I know it sounds like a lecture today, but I just wanted to get these introduction points out, and then we'll kind of begin going through the scripture of what, what this actually is. But Egypt is a type of the world. And so God is, gives us these plagues to teach us how he's going to deal with the rebellion of the world. And this is a very valid question for us in our day, because there's a lot of rebellion going on around us. A lot of people who don't want anything to do with God, who want to rebel against everything God says is right and wrong. And a lot of times we can kind of stress out about how is that going to be taken care of, and these plagues help us to understand how God is going to take care of these things. We find in the book of Revelation that there is, these plagues are repeated at the end times. We have water being turned into blood. We have all these different things repeated, and that's the ultimate God taking care of the problems and rebellion of this world is in the book of Revelation. And so the connection between Genesis and or Exodus now and Revelation is quite striking, and we're going to see that. So I'm going to go through the 10 real quick and just give you the moral application of them so that we have that out there. Today, the water being turned into blood tells us how the very water that they worshipped, the Nile River, was not able to save them from the hand of God, and God actually turns it to blood. The second one is the frogs we're going to study next week. Um, by their inflation suggests the pride and self-sufficiency of the children of this world and, and rebellious people. Number three, the plague of lice speaks of the uncleanness and filth which issues forth from the lusts of the flesh. Number four, the swarm of flies announces how the wicked are the father are, um, of their father, the devil, who is named Beelzebub, which means Lord of Flies. Then we have the death of the cattle, which is like their beast of burden, which means all their support systems will crash and die. Number six, the, the boils that they get on their skin uh, 
remind us of the awful dis, uh, condition of the unregenerate person uh, given from the prophet Isaiah, which says, from the sole of their foot, even to their head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. So we're going to start, talk a little bit about the human condition. Number seven, the hail and lightning symbolize God's wrath on the disobedient. Number eight, the locusts, which ate up all the vegetation, picture the spiritual blind, barrenness of this world and, uh, and of the soul. Number nine, the darkness shows how uh, the world is alienated from the light of the world. We'll talk about that with Jesus. And finally, the tenth one will be the death of the firstborn, um, which talks about the second death for the people of Egypt. So I know that was a lot. I don't expect you to remember all of those, but we are going to take the next 10 weeks and we're going to explain each one individually. And so we begin right now with the first plague. It says, well, the first plague is when the water is turned to blood, okay? And it tells us how the water that these Egyptians worshipped was not able to save them from the hand of God. And so I have a, a picture. I don't know. Do we have the picture of that happy guy? H-A-P-I? No, we don't have a picture. Never mind. There's a guy named Happy that the Egyptians worshipped. He was the god of the Nile River. And, uh, and so he is who this plague specifically is challenging by God. And it says in chapter 7, verse 14, we're going to get into our text now. And it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When he goes out of the water, you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent, you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. And the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod, stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, and over the streams, and over the rivers, and over the ponds, and over the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and in the pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and he struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them. As the Lord had said, and Pharaoh turned and went to his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians did not drink the water, and seven days passed after the Lord struck the river. So again, at the end of that, we see something very interesting, almost shocking, that the magicians in Egypt were able to duplicate this plague, this supernatural plague they were able to duplicate. And we, we answered that question last week. We briefly talked about how Satan has powers to do miracles. 
And some people were like, well, that's kind of interesting. I thought that if we saw a miracle, that was proof of God. Well, it's proof of supernatural, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. And so you have some preachers who do miracles, but they're not talking about Jesus, and they're not from Jesus. And in that situation, we have to say, that's very dangerous. But the Bible warns us about it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, the coming of the lawless one, who's who? Satan or the Antichrist, either one in this situation, is according to the working of Satan, okay? With all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So the Antichrist in the future, and even in our day, there's many Antichrists, preachers or anybody who has spiritual power but they don't love the truth. And what is the truth? The Word of God. So anyone who doesn't let the Word of God govern their life and their whatever spiritual power they have is, uh, according to this, doing it by the power of Satan. He's able to do lying wonders. And, And that's amazing. The truth, it says, is our guide. So we can't let miracles be our guide. There's churches that talk about miracles. In fact, there's one right down right on the way to your house, and they have a sign that says, 30-day lesson in miracles, right? And, but we study miracles too. We did 16 weeks on studying the miracles of Elisha, and what we saw there is that miracles aren't what we pursue. We pursue the God in truth, and miracles follow. He does do supernatural, powerful things, but it has to be in accordance with the word of God, or the truth. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying one thing or another about that church, but there are a lot of churches that talk about miracles and they say, come in and come see miracles. And that's very dangerous. And it, you could, that's not the point. You could, I could get a lot of people in here. If I said, next week, we're going to cut Ryan in half and, and we're going to put him back together with, with a different bottom half and it's going to look really funny, but it's going to be miraculous. And I could get, I, we could pack this place out. We probably have to do it three times for three services. It would be, you, want, you up for that? No, we're not going to do that. We're just going to say, no, we are going to study the truth of the word of God. And it may be more boring than miracles. And sometimes it's really exciting to see, wow, exciting things. But if it's not following truth, truth teaching, then they're not real, the Bible says. You have to have the Word of God being taught. Now, Jehovah's Witness, you guys ever met a Jehovah's Witness? They come to your door. We love them so much, right? We say, we love you guys. Thank you for coming to our door. Let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) That's how we act, right? We don't slam the door in their faces. Okay, well, (laughs) Dana loves how I always go talk to the Jehovah's Witness. Anyway. Yes. Jehovah's Witness will come to you and they will say this. When you hear what we say, we want you to ask God to give you a burning in your bosom. Did you guys hear about that? They say burning in your bosom. And they say, I want you to pray and feel if you don't feel something magical happening in your heart, in your bosom. They will say that. 
And many people testify that when they talk to Jehovah's Witness and they're kind of wondering about it, and, and they, they're talking about this other Jesus, and, and, and then they pray that they do get this burning in the bosom. What do we say about that? Well, it's very easy. Ha <laughs> ha, Satan gave you heartburn. It's satanic heartburn. It is a miracle from Satan if it's real. How can we say that? Because their teaching is not truth and not according to the word of God. So if there's a miracle happening, fine, but it's by Satan's power. Okay? So that's how we deal with that. We have to help people understand that truth is more authoritative than miracles. Well, here we have water being turned into blood. Notice also that the, uh, the satanic magicians that Pharaoh had, they couldn't make the water clean again. They could only ruin people's lives. They can't actually help them. That's very important to understand too. So here the water is turned to blood. What does that mean? Well, did you guys hear about the two blood cells? They fell in love in vain. <laughs> well, water so oftentimes speaks of, in the Bible, what? What does water speak of? What is it a type of? The Holy Spirit, but also the water of the Word of God. The Word of God is seen as water. It's typified and by, pictured by water. And blood, many times, represents death. And those are the two things that we're going to see represented here by these two things. Water of the Word of God and death. God's Word. So here we have the water being turned into blood for the Egyptian people. God's Word, the Bible, for the world is death. They hate the Bible. I post Bible verses on Facebook and Twitter all the time, and I have people message me all the time with hateful things because they think uh, that it's death. They hear the word of God, and they're just like, you are so stupid to believe that. You are so um, dumb, and you're so mean to believe that God's Bible is true because all they hear is law. They are deaf and blind when it comes to love and grace that's in the word of God that we know is high above the law, that the law is done away with for those who receive his grace, but they don't see that. They see only law. And when you've broken the law, the penalty for breaking the law is death. And so when they hear the Bible, the word, they, they, they're like, you're just shouting death at me. And it's not pleasant to them. So are we supposed, what are we supposed to do? We still give them the word of God. We give them the law. We understand it's going to be difficult for them to hear, but then we follow it up by explaining grace and love to them at the same time. When we speak God's word, we have to speak both law and grace. When Jesus came, it says in John 1.14 that he came full of grace and truth. The truth being, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. The truth being, you're, you're not measuring up to God's standard. How, how can you say that? Well, let's look at the standard. Ten commandments, you. Ten commandments, you suck. That's what the Ten Commandments say. You're terrible compared to the standard God has. Well, something's wrong with the standard. Nope, nothing's wrong with this standard. 
It judges everybody. Well, how can you say that? This is lame. Why do I want to go to church? Because there's more. Okay? The Ten Commandments, I explained before, are done away with by the grace of Jesus. When you accept what Jesus did, it is done away with. And people need to hear both those messages. We can't just say, guess what? Grace, everyone come to church because they're like, why do I need to come to church? Why do I need? Everyone in Denver is thinking, I want to sleep on Sunday mornings. I want to smoke weed on Sunday mornings. Why why would I get up and go listen to a boring teacher teach something that doesn't apply to me? Why do I need it? Why, why, why? because they don't yet know the law. But when we come with just the law, we say, you suck. And you know what they think? You're a jerk. And I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to come to church for that reason. So we have to skillfully, lovingly, share both truths. Just like Jesus. Jesus was able to tell the woman at the well, you're a sinner. And God loves you and has provided for you what you need. That is the message. And many people will reject that message, but that's okay. We still lovingly share the truth in love to these people. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, it says, To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other we're the aroma of life leading to life. And what does that mean? It means when we live our lives and we're just following Jesus, Some people smell us and they're like, you're disgusting, I hate you. You remind me of death, that I'm going to be judged for my sin. However you're living, if you love Jesus, that's how you smell to them. He says it's a spiritual aroma. You can't help but smelling that way to the world. But then you come into church and all your brothers and sisters are here and we smell you and we're like, ooh, life leading to life. Awesome, you love Jesus and it's great to be around you. Paul says that's a reality in this life. So, now I want you to remember the first miracle of Jesus. You guys know what the first miracle of Jesus was? Turning the water into wine. Wow! Now that's actually going um, to link together with what we're talking about here in a pretty amazing way. It says in John 1.17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law, these plagues speak of the law. The first plague is the water being turned into blood, the word of God bringing, like just being awful, speaking of death to these Egyptians. But Jesus brings grace and truth. What's the difference? God's word for us brings life. That's what wine symbolizes, new life, life for us. Jesus brings life where Moses and the law bring death to this world today. There's no life to be found in law-keeping, performance, measuring. This applies to us as believers today. We can so easily go back to the law in the way that we live our life. And that looks like law-keeping and performance measuring. How well am I doing? And and we we use the law and we, we think, the better I do, the more God accepts me. But that is leaving behind grace and it only brings death 
spiritual death into our life. Have you ever gotten burned out reading the Bible and following Jesus? A lot of people have. And I understand why that happens. It's because we go back to Moses as the way of relating to God. And that only brings death. If your life with Jesus is not bubbling up and full of joy and reading the scriptures is just blowing your mind, if, if that's not the reality of your life, you are doing it by Moses. It's not that you're having a bad day. It's that we have turned away from Jesus as being the only source of our life to I need to do something to fill myself up. I need to do something to show myself worthy. I need to do something. And when we start looking at ourselves and we, we lower our eyes from Jesus, we get downcast. Downcast. We get depressed. We get sad because we have no source of life in ourselves. It runs dry. And we, we get burnt out so fast. I mean... In a day, we can get burnt out, we can get dry. Where Jesus is ever standing there with rivers and fountains of living water for us, available to us. And that's the life he's called us to. He said, I've come that they may have life and life more abundantly. Not that you can live a boring, conservative Christian life just listening to Caleb which is fine. I love Caleb. We listen to Caleb. But for some people, that's like not, that doesn't do it for them because it's not intended to. That's not the source of our spiritual life. We can't maintain your connection with God by listening to a radio station. It's got to be real grace connection with Jesus. And then we're free. We can listen to Caleb or whatever you want. What's the difference between the law and Jesus? One brings life and the other brings death. There's no life in rebellious law breaking either. Like we just talked about legalism and how when we try to measure up to God, we'll end up dry and and empty and no life. But the other extreme of that is, well, fine, I'm just going to break all the laws and do whatever I want. And Pharaoh, he's chosen that path. And Pharaoh, we're going to see there's no life in rebellious law-breaking either. There's only life in trusting Jesus more completely and receiving his gift of life and grace every day. That's the only place law is found, or life is found, excuse me. All the law can do is bring about death. Like if we said, if we were going to measure your life by your performance, we would fail. Sinner, you die, death. That would be the answer to all of our measuring of our performance, period. The law simply informs us of God's demands, but it does nothing to actually help us meet those demands where Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it on your behalf, in your life. I do that. Hmm. Now, It says in our text that the fish that are in the river shall die. Did you see that? It says the fish that are in the river die. And it's funny because they worship this Nile River. 
And they, 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 all their food, all their fish came from the Nile. They loved it. That's the why they settled there. It's what they spent all their time was cultivating this river. And what they thought that the river was providing them, God is turning it into death. In other words, God is saying, this river that you worship is not going to satisfy you. And I'm going to make sure that you understand that it will not satisfy you. See, the world is telling a big lie. It's selling this big lie that is going to give you what you really want. Oh, if you have this, all of advertising is built on that. If you have this car, chicks will dig you. If you have this money, people will like you and respect you and you'll be safe. They have all these things they're selling us. The world is. That it's really what you want. What you really want is education and safety and security or whatever the American dream is today. But God is telling us in this plague that he is going to judge the world and he's going to make sure that they are never happy in rebellion. Is that really the life we want to live? Where God is working behind the scenes invisibly to make sure you're not happy? Oh, what a jerk God. No, that's not what he is. He's perfectly loving, and he's doing it so that you don't depend on stupid things. That's what he's doing. It's like when, uh, I think Brady was out a couple weeks ago, your son. Yes, and he was like, he wanted to run into the street, like right out there. And I was standing in him like this and like this. And at one point, I pushed him over onto the grass, just onto his butt. And he was like, man, you hate me. And I'm like, no, I love you, but I don't want you to go to a stupid place where you're going to get hurt. I'm protecting you, okay? Well, God is going to do the same thing with men, too. This is just the first step in God protecting the world. He's going he's to judge them and make sure the things that they find are so exciting and thrilling don't satisfy them. You ever been, gotten obsessed about something like a video game or a movie series or, or like a TV show and you get to the end of it and you're like, not satisfying. I didn't like how that ended. And then you start thinking back about all the time that you wasted on that one thing and you start to feel this empty feeling inside. Well, that's kind of what's going on here with this plague. God will make sure things that we do in the flesh do not satisfy us. And it's such a loving gift from God that he does this. I love it. He's making sure. In fact, he says, in our text, he says, the river will stink. And the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Every hope we put in worldly things is going to end up being an awfully gross part of our life. The things that we put before Jesus in our life must be cast out and destroyed. He makes no peace treaties with God. God doesn't start the first plague by saying, uh, happy, the Egyptian god of the Nile, let's make a peace treaty. You can have the lower part of the Nile and I'll take it. No. God says, all death. He makes no peace treaties. He demands absolute surrender. Now, that's not popular to teach in the world today. It's not popular People want to be able to have autonomous decision-making power of their life. If I don't like what that church is teaching, I can go to this church. And if I don't like what that church is saying, I can just stop going to church. I still have Jesus. I'm good. 
with all that? And God's like, no, no. Absolute surrender is what I demand of you. That's just mean. But I want you guys to look at this pen. Okay, we got this pen in my hand. Now, when this pen is absolutely surrendered to my will, I can kind of write my name. I can sign a check. I can say things according to my authority. I can, I can create art. I can do whatever I want when it's absolutely surrendered. But if I were holding this pen and it had a will of its own and it was doing its will while I'm trying to use it, you know what I would do? I would just throw it at you because it's worthless. Cast it out to be burned. I have another one right here. (laughs) And it's absolutely the truth. What use does God have for someone who's not absolutely surrendered to him? (gasps) But I thought God was so loving that he would just treasure me even as a rebellious little brat. Well, he does treasure you. But he loves you far too much to allow you to think that that's okay. It's not okay. And Jesus gives a lot of parables about how someone can be in his hands and then cast out because they refuse to surrender to his leading. A lot of parables. And we'll look at some of those here in the future. Absolute surrender. Guys, if you forget everything else I said today, that is totally fine. I'm sorry I've wasted your time. But do not forget this one thing. God is not okay with you keeping rebelliousness inside you. We can't live like that. Absolute surrender is demanded by God. And I can't, I don't know how to say it anymore. You can't wake up in the morning and think, what am I going to do with my life? We have to say, Father, my life is yours. What do you want for me to do today? We have to. Our lives do not belong to us. It's a heart issue. And I don't want you to come to this church for days and weeks and years and never have heard it preached and told to you that God wants your absolute surrender. Now, what does he give someone who absolutely surrenders? Everything. Grace, according to the gift of God, according to what Jesus gave, which means Jesus' life is given to you, the very life of Jesus. Was Jesus ever sad to the point of despair? No, he was joyful. He had peace. He was fully empowered by God. And that's the life you have to look forward to if you absolutely surrender. But if you don't absolutely surrender, you just have continued struggle. And if you don't surrender, period, you're going to be cast out. I I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care what what you think you believe about doctrine and Jesus dying on the cross. Oh yeah, that's for me, but I'm not going to surrender my evenings, my mornings, my jobs, my, my relationship. None of it, really. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. That means die to everything you thought you were, all your hopes and dreams, and live only through me and you'll have that life abundant. You'll have everything you've ever hoped for, wanted for, even more is what I offer. But it demands absolute surrender. So we could stop there, but we'll go on just a little more. Um, 
the pen was a good example. My other example of, a, of something rebelling would be someone with Tourette's. You ever heard someone with Tourette's? Their mouth is rebelling, and you know, they're just all of a sudden, run stupid, you know, and they don't, you know, I don't mean to say that. It was the Tourette's. My mouth rebelled against me, and I, so you don't want that. It doesn't work, right? Well, the Egyptians, they could not drink this water. It says in our text, it said, the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. This is um, not the type of life God wants to have for his people. The people need water, but that's what they get if they refuse his will. God will not allow substitutes, like we just said. They will never be satisfied. Jesus is the fountain of living water. He offers that abundant life. He says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water water. So God is is telling the Egyptians, guys, you're looking for an external source of life, this Nile River, and it's going to fail you. Look for a different source of life, an internal source of life supplied by my son, Jesus, and it's a river that will never, out of your heart, will flow rivers of living water. And it says here that all the Egyptians dug all around the the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. So they, they had all these pots and everything. All of it was turned to blood, so the only way they could find anything drinkable was if they dug around the river. But look at what's happening here. Instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, and saying, oh, I'm sorry, they try harder to find what they need. And it's remarkable that when people hear the gospel, the church proclaims the gospel, so many people are like, no, I don't want a free gift. Let me try even harder to fix myself. Let me go to even more great lengths to fix myself, to continue to measure up, instead of just accepting the free grace of God. If this is you, please stop digging and assess why the rivers in your life are plagued. Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking, ah, my rivers are plagued. I don't find joy in anything. I kind of find like, seem like everything sucks in my life. I, let me just try harder. No, stop. Think, maybe God is judging and specifically making everything blood, death in your life. Simply repent. Have you stood against God's will and stubbornly sought to lead your own life and direct your own life? And I get to choose because I'm an American and I hear so much when I grow up about freedom and freedom means I get to choose whatever I want and I get nobody can judge me. For I can pick anything I want, nobody can judge me. And it's simply just not true. That's not life. God says, there's my will or there's rebellion. And you don't think, oh yeah, I'm rebelling against God. You're just, I'm just doing whatever I want to do because that's what America says. And God's like, you're just teaming up with rebellion. My will for you is life in my son. Grace through him. The, uh, America wants you to be happy, which is not life in Jesus. Life is better than just temporary happiness. And it's not working out for this world. It's not working out for our country because that river is just death. You smoke that weed, 
and you're never really happy. You, you, you sleep with that girl, but you're never really satisfied. You drink, but there's never a real true escape. And I could pick any of anything else that's going on. We got to stop seeking water for our soul in other places besides Jesus. And that's what they're doing here by digging. They're just digging. Where else can I? You know the popular, in the rap culture, it's, I'm just hustling. Stop. Accept a free gift from Jesus. Yes, you have to humble yourself. Yes, that is the way. You can't earn it. But instead of digging down and and constantly working, just lift your eyes up. Just picture, what's the position when you're digging down? You're, you're focused down here. And, and instead, just lift your eyes up, lift your hands up in surrender, and he grants living water to that attitude, that heart. All right? All we say is, Jesus, I've been wrong. I refuse to trust in those things anymore. I'm going to trust in you alone from this day forward. And so why would I get drunk? Why would I try to escape? Why would I try to get high? Why would I sleep with someone and dishonor my body that God has purified and make it impure again? Why would I do those things when life is found in you and in nowhere else? This is the way we produce change in our world, not by telling people, stop sinning, but by telling people, that's not life. That's not where life is found. And introducing them to the source of life, Jesus. Now, how can you introduce to someone to someone you don't know? You can't. So our invitation goes out every week. If you have never humbled yourself and asked Jesus to wash away your sins by his substitutionary death on the cross, that he took your place on the cross, today is the day to call out to him and say, Wash me clean. And I turn my life over to you. It's not just wash me clean and then I go do whatever I want to do. No, it's wash me clean by your grace. And then I surrender my will to you from this day forward forevermore. Got it? That's what it means to be saved, to be born again. And God takes care of everything else. And we have communion that we do during our last song, and that's our, our time now. So if you guys would stand up.